I remember hearing growing up wasn't entirely accurate. And I think between popular culture and some of the inaccurate teaching stuff, there's a lot of misconceptions. And so under this general heading of this series that we're doing called Does the Bible Really Say? Um, I'm kind of calling this, does the Bible really say we'll spend eternity in heaven? And my answer to that hint, hint, is not exactly. And we're going to flesh that out. We're going to look uh, today at the biblical teaching about what actually happens when we die. And some of the misconceptions about heaven and that sort of thing. And then next Sunday we're going to talk about where are you really going to spend eternity? And then, Sunday after that, we're going to talk about those who have rejected Christ and where they will spend eternity. And so, aren't you glad that's not all in one sermon? That would have been a very long day. First, let's talk about some misconceptions. I mean, that's one of the, one of the good reasons to study any subject. One of the misconceptions that I often hear is, well, you know, the Bible's really confusing, and it really doesn't say that much, you know, it doesn't tell us, give us much information to go on about heaven and hell. That is wrong. The Bible tells us a lot of things about this. The Bible has a lot of information about the eternal destiny and things that happen after we die and after we die. Then, of course, is the ever-popular, as I pointed out last Sunday, the old St. Peter at the pearly gates sort of trope, right? There he is. You know, he's got the little key there, right? And of course, that is a misunderstanding of the passage where Jesus talks to Peter and tells him about giving the keys to the kingdom and sort of combined with this idea of the pearly gates of the new Jerusalem as described in the book of Revelation. And somehow, we ended up in modern society with St. Peter at the pearly gates, somehow the gatekeeper. Those gates don't even look like pearls. Those gates look like It's not going to be boring, 
you're not going to be on a cloud, and no one is handing you a harp, okay? And you know how to play a harp. Does anybody know how to play a harp? I don't know how to play a harp. I barely, barely can play a harp. You throw a harp. You see how many strings that thing has? It's slow, okay? I mean, you're a lot more to a trinity than you do. I'm all But I think one of the things that really hangs on to people, and I hear this a lot, is because we, we haven't experienced eternity or heaven or that sort of thing, we're worried that eternity is not going to be as good as the things we haven't even yet experienced here. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't know how many younger people who I used to be in college ministry would talk about they didn't want to get to heaven until they'd gotten to be married or to have children. Or until they got to go on a vacation in the Caribbean or whatever it happened to be. Not sure how they equate, you know, having children with a vacation in the Caribbean. In fact, those two things are pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum. But, um, you know, and, and the implication there is what if heaven, what if eternity isn't as great as marriage or children or beaches? Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. Just set our minds on heavenly things, much like I talked last week about seeking first his kingdom. And then Paul will then go on in Colossians to explain how setting our minds on things above leads us to rid ourselves of sin and to develop compassion and forgiveness and humility and patience and loving others. That's all that comes after that, Colossians 3. In fact, the passage right after that is my favorite thing to preach it at Wayne. I think it's what I preached it right in Greenwood. My favorite thing to talk about is kindness, humility, and patience. Marie's thinking, well, let's see right about that patience. <laughs> <laughs> you hear me right now? Pick on the guys that have chosen for But I mean, I can't think of better earthly things than things like kindness and compassion and forgiveness and patience, all of which develop out of a heavenly mindset, an eternal mindset. You really can't be too heavenly-minded because it will change how you think about things in this world. Thirdly, understanding and looking forward to what awaits uh, the one who follows Jesus is a source of strength and hope. Think about Jesus the last few days on earth, right? Uh, and he tells his disciples he's leaving and they're not going to go. Right? We just sang a song about it. And how does he encourage them? I mean, think about how traumatic this was for the disciples. They've been, they've been with Jesus for a long time, you know, three years. And he's like, look, I'm going to go. I'm leaving. And this is what he says to encourage them. He says, John 14, verses 1 to 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or if you like the King James Version, many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus' encouragement to the disciples as he's telling them that he's about to leave them <clears throat> is, I'm going to prepare an eternal home for you, so that I can come again and take you there. That's the encouragement. I'm preparing eternity for you. And then I'm going to come, after I've prepared that eternity for you, and I'm going to take you to be with me so you can be with me in person once again. The source of strength and encouragement to think about what awaits in the midst of the trials of this life. Finally, things that looking forward to eternity and thinking about these things and the motivation about sharing Jesus with others. If we already grasp what awaits those who give their lives to Jesus and what awaits those who do not, it becomes a strong motivation to share Jesus' message of hope and love. Because I can tell you that what we're going to learn is that heaven is better and hell is worse than any of us can possibly imagine. We're going to begin our, turn, our journey toward eternity. I didn't think about how to say that anymore. With one of the biggest misconceptions, and that is this idea that the present heaven is our final destination. And I think we get some of this because there's a lot of confusion over how we use the term heaven and how the Bible uses the term heaven and some of the concepts that exist about heaven. So we're going to talk about the ways we use the word heaven and the ways the Bible uses the word heaven. And I'm going to find my little... Ooh, there it is. Okay. 
Now the Hebrews had three, had a concept of a three-tiered heaven. And the first heaven, the Hebrew mind, which is of course the, the context of Jesus and Paul and all that, the Hebrew mind. The first heaven is the air, which you're breathing, the atmosphere, where the birds are flying, that sort of thing. That's the first heaven. And they understood that beyond that layer of whatever exists a second heaven, or the starry heaven, the starry host, the, the stars and stuff that's out in space. They understood that that stuff was outside of the atmosphere. Well, that's the second heaven. And then they referred to somewhere out there beyond that in their minds, the third heaven, or the abode of God. Okay? The place somewhere beyond those heavens, and, you know, Try not to think spatially about that. Just somewhere out there beyond the air and beyond the stars is the abode of God. And so we see this in places like 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where Paul writes, he's talking about this heavenly vision. He I know, he's really talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the where? The third heaven. He wasn't caught up to Venus or something. Right? He wasn't just caught up like where the eagles fly. He was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. You know, he didn't fully understand it, right? But he was caught up to the place where God is, to the spirit realm, to the abode of God, to the place where Psalm verse, chapter 2, verse 4 says he's God is enthroned. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Okay, so the one enthroned in heaven is the Lord. Where he's in heaven. He's not, he's not in heaven like he's on top of Mount Everest or something. Like if you were, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist, thinking that Chomlama, the god of Everest, is up there hanging out on the mountain. He's not in heaven like, like he's hanging out in the Andromeda Galaxy, you know, spending some stars up just for fun on the Starship Enterprise or something. Okay? He's, he's in the abode where he is, the third heaven in the Hebrew mind. The, the place where God is. Okay? See, and so the Bible uses this word heaven, especially in the Old Testament, a bit Paul, Freedom, the New Testament, about the idea of the abode of God. And then we use that word to think of the place where we spend eternity. But the confusion with that is, and I'm going to call that from now on, the present heaven. So where, where God is, where Jesus is, Where's Jesus right now? The right hand of the Father, right? Okay. Wherever that is, that's the present heaven. The abode of God. The spiritual realm. The power of God. Okay. But, he's not the ultimate place that we will spend eternity. So when, but it is a place where we will spend some time. The Lord's here. 2 Corinthians 5 8, Paul writes, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home, or if you again have some other reason, to be present with the Lord. What do you mean by that? Let me ask you a question. You ever thought about this much? What is physical death? 
It is when the spirit or the soul or whatever word you want to stick in there that is you permanently separates from your present body. The immaterial part of you goes on to exist in a temporary spiritual state. Okay, so you die, and whatever that immaterial part of you is, you call it your soul, you call it your spirit, you call it both. I, I don't care what it's called. It leaves you. And it goes, if you're a follower of Jesus, to the abode of God. Right? Paul just said, if I'm absent from the body, well, what part of me? If I'm absent from the body, the only thing that can be absent from the body for me is the immaterial part of me. That part goes to be home with the Lord and be present with the Lord. But it's a temporary state. It's not your final destination. Because the immaterial part of us is the present heaven. If you die, or, you know, like my dad died in January, his immaterial part is in the present heaven. He's not here. So we have the body in the jar. Luke chapter 16. There's a rich man 
was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Yet his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. These guys have a rough life, okay? The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's kind of weird. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner had bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Oh, Father Abraham, Besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, when you read this story, I guess I'm not, okay, just, let's all let's all just keep, remember that's a really strange story for Jesus to tell, right? That's a weird story. Okay, but it's but first of all, it's not a parable, okay? Because parables are general stories that normally have a point, like one point. All right, this is a detailed story which names names and that sort of thing. And even if he's not describing an actual real event, okay, Jesus, I don't think, would ever tell us a story that would mislead us from the truth. So if Jesus is including details, I'm going to assume, because I believe what Jesus says is true, that whatever details Jesus supplies must also be true. He would not be making up details just so he can have a really good story. That does not strike me as how Jesus would tell a story. Okay, so look at the things we learned from this story. First of all, there's this idea that the angels usher your spirit into eternity. That's there, right? It says, Lazarus died and the angels carried his spirit up. Somehow, the angels are involved in taking us into eternity. Somehow they are there to transition our spirit from the material state to the immaterial state. Because I'm going to imagine, I have never died, okay? But I'm going to imagine that's a bit of a shock.
But I'm also going to say there's no reason for Smaka tribesmen to make something like that up. That's pretty crazy stuff. Point is, the story tells us, Jesus tells us the angels are going to take us into eternity. Next thing you're going to notice is people are fully aware. Okay? Now, in the future sermon here, I'm going to talk about this whole idea of the different words that you use, know, Hades and that sort of thing. The gulf that exists here, we'll talk about that. You know, some scholars believe that prior to the resurrection, the Old Testament saints were not in in heaven because Christ had not made atonement for sin yet, but they were in a special place, this place they call Abraham's bosom. That's fine. But you notice there's awareness. In this case, they're aware of each other. But the most important thing I want to make a point of is that the people who have died and gone on are aware of what's going on because there are some who hold the air called soul sleep. Have you ever heard that term, soul sleep? Okay. And that's an error that comes about because in the New Testament, sometimes Paul uses the word sleep as a euphemism for death. So for example, 1 Thessalonians 14, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Okay? Now, when, when he says asleep there, he doesn't mean that they tucked in night and night with their teddy bear. He means they're dead. People have already died. And some hold to the idea that that means that when people die, their soul or their spirit goes to sleep. Sort of like suspended animation or something like Han Solo in the Carbonite, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Okay? That cannot be true. Okay? First of all, because Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 13, that not everyone's going to have to die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, right? There's going to be a resurrection. We're talking about rapture. So sleep there clearly means die, because it's only going to make sense in the context. In John 11, in the story of Lazarus' resurrection, not the same Lazarus that's in this story, that's a common name. Right? What does Jesus say to his disciples? Our friend Lazarus is asleep. And what do the disciples say? Wow, Jesus, if he's sleeping, then he'll wake up someday. That's great, man. He's probably tired. I mean, it's hard work putting up the Mary and Martha all day. So, you know, well, try and rest him. No. Jesus looks at me and goes, he's dead. He's just like, he's dead. This Lazarus and this other guy suffering in the rich man and Abraham, they're all fully aware of events in the afterlife. And then as we're going to see in Revelation 4 and 5, there's saints worshiping in heaven. They're clearly awake and aware. That's great. When you, when you die, you don't go to some sort of purgatory or some sort of holding area. There's no early gates up there where St. Peter's got a checklist, right? You're immediately in God's presence, and that's another amazing thing, right? What did Paul say about being immediately in God's presence? I prefer rather the absence from the body to be at home and to be present with the Lord. 
thief on the cross. Luke 23, 43. That's who Jesus is talking to here, right? What does he say when the thief professes Christ? He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When? Today. Not, not some undetermined time yet only known to the Father in the future. Not, you're going to go somewhere, but I'm going to be there. Today, with me, paradise. So, you immediately go there. Both the different ways, Paul and Jesus say that once you're in material part of this body, you're going to be in God's presence directly. No intermediate state, no purgatory, no waiting, no pass and go, no collecting to our Thank you. 
million scholars with 40 different answers on this. I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. To me personally, I think if I was in heaven and knew what was going on on earth, that would make it like the other place. I don't know. But surely there is worship. And it's the best worship ever because we're directly in God's presence. And that's the other thing, the final thing. That you're going to experience God's glory in its fullness. Verse 2 through 6 of Revelation 4. At once I see John again, and once I was in the Spirit, behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed with white garments and golden crowns in their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are the four living creatures full of eyes and front and You know, whenever I read John's descriptions of stuff like this, I think of things like, you know, how do you describe to another person the feeling of all in the world? Or how do you describe someone who's never experienced it, the feeling of only as you are. Because that's really something else. <laughs> what do you think of rapture of, of a, a sunset on the ocean? Imagine being poor John and experiencing the glory of God on the throne of the universe. How are you going to put that in the word? Right? He tries. But that's why everything's described. It had the appearance of. It was sort of like this. It was kind of like this. But he describes sparkling jewels, deafening sounds, and immense, incomprehensible power of the Lord. That's everything the light, the appearance of. Because who can imagine or describe it? Because until they actually experience it, there are no words. But it will be wonderful and glorious and filled with awe. So you get hit by the sun. The angels usher you directly into the presence of Jesus. And it's bright, and it's loud, and it's beyond anything we can imagine. And there's worship, and other people, and the angels, and, and, and it's almost a, a spiritual sensory overload. But you're fully aware of it. And you're fully experienced. In other words, it's, it's unimaginably better than anything ever experienced something that way. And what's even crazier, it's only temporary. Because something even better awaits after this temporary time of our immaterial part in the present heaven. There's something even better. And that's something we look forward to. While we are going to go to the present heaven for a time, eventually resurrection will And if we're to be resurrected in the physical bodies, just as Jesus was, then there will be, as one of my seminary professors used to say, an eternity appropriate for those physical bodies. We call that a new heaven and a new earth. We'll look at it. Father, it is, it is certainly incomprehensible 
what awaits. John tried to describe some of it as you revealed it to him, but it's, it's so hard to comprehend. So much better than we could ever imagine. It came to that. For the way they would follow Jesus. And even that little temporary. Because someday, there's also a new heaven and a new earth that will come. And you resurrect Jesus with that sort of eternal life. So until that time, help us look forward to what comes to set our minds up things above. Because as the song we sang reflected Jesus' words, in this world, we'll have many problems. But Jesus is on his prayer first. And where he is, we also will be able to do the same thing. And we thank you for him. I want to let Dan come back up.